Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So over the past few weeks, Jesus has told a number of startling stories. Uh, the word for that is a parable. It's a particular kind of story. And he's told these startling stories to his disciples, which hopefully means that Jesus has startled us with his words too. So if we haven't been a little bit startled, a little bit set on edge, then maybe we need to go back and read them again. These words from Jesus alarm us because they work against the insipidly human drive to be one of the winners. This is true in first century Palestine, and it is true in 2019 Charlottesville. Most everything about our life from the day we're born is aimed at being a winner, at being successful. Our education, our career, our family photos, our self-image, the guys we project to others, our Instagram feed, our spiritual persona. It's about winning, about succeeding, about being on the right side. It's pretty blatant in Luke chapter 9. That's been read a long time ago now, but you'll remember the passage. This is what the scripture says in Luke 9. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. Can you believe that? The disciples are with Jesus and they're arguing and fighting about which of them is going to be the greatest. It's like being back on the playground again in fourth grade. And you get the sense as you're reading Luke's gospel that the disciples really never escaped this posture. They may have gotten a little more sophisticated in how they were navigating it, but it really seems like if you dig deep enough, what they were really wondering is, is who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? Perhaps we've come up with more sophisticated ways of hiding our addiction to success or to winning, but it seems to me like it's sunk deep into our bones. When I was learning to drive, uh, I realized for some reason, which was just a gift, I don't know why, parallel parking came really easy. I was taught the right three steps, something about it intuitively clicked, and I was just able to parallel park pretty well. And I can't tell you how, at almost 48 years old, how fun it is to be with Miska and be looking for a spot, and there's a really tight squeeze, and I pop it right in there, and then hear Miska say, wow, that was a good parking job. And I don't know for sure if I exude this externally or not, but internally, I am beaming. And what I'm actually saying is, winner. I won. Well, um, for at least, I think, four years now, um, Seth and a friend of his named Malik have been playing football together, which means that Malik's parents, Myron and Jarena, um, have been at all the games. We've, we've become good friends. We sit at the games together. 
And they have even gotten us into um, ringing cowbells at football games. So if you can imagine Miska and me at a CHS game ringing a cowbell, that's definitely happening. And uh, Friday night, it ended up being just Myron and me going to the game at Fluvanna. And so we get there, and we're a little bit late. And the parking is absolutely packed. I mean, it is, there is no parking anywhere. We're driving around. And finally, and I'm in our, uh, our old, my old Honda Pilot. This is not a small car. And all of a sudden, I, I spot this little spot um, right alongside the edge of the curb. And I'm like, I'm totally getting that. <laughs> so I come over, and I start to back in. And you know how it happens. I mean, there is probably 20 cars backed up, and I'm taking my time, and I get in, and I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm in the spot, but the problem is I look out, and I realize I'm hanging out about four feet uh, into, the, into the, the lane. Well, this isn't going to work. So I start trying to kind of nudge my way in, and it, it, it all just falls apart. It absolutely falls apart. And then you start sweating, right? <laughs> And then all the traffic is backed up, and the people are, like, getting really antsy. And finally, Myron says, hey, you want me to, to get out and kind of direct you? And that's a little stab, you know. <laughs> but I'm like, sure. I mean, because obviously I need it. So he gets out, and he's doing this and doing this, and I'm trying this. And, and meanwhile, the, the line behind us is backing up for ages. And, and I just can't get it. And finally, Myron leans in. And he's trying really hard to be nice. And Myron says, you want me to do it? <laughs> so shame-faced, I open up my door, I get out of the car. I let another man get into my vehicle <laughs> and properly park. I wasn't a winner anymore. And, and I have to be honest, it smarted for a few minutes that I had to let another guy park my car. That's embarrassing. But if I think about it, and I continue to ponder where this goes in me, it's not that different from really any other part of my life. If I'm really honest, I do want to be the pastor who wins. I do want to be the dad who does it right and wins. I want to be the writer that gets a book somewhere, at least in the realm of something that somebody actually notices. Me and the disciples were pretty close on this. We both, all of us, want to win. It seems that the disciple, because it's in Luke 9 that they ask this question, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? It seems they hadn't heard Jesus' parable that he told actually just before that in Luke chapter 8 about the seed, which is the word of God, and how it falls on all different kinds of soil. There's rocky ground, there's thorny ground, there's good ground. And the good ground, as John tells us, and as any gardener knows, what is good ground? It's simply ground where seeds can die. This is the kind of death into life that Jesus was calling all of the disciples into. And this was the kind of death into life that Jesus is calling each one of us into. This is Jesus's radical revolution. 
It may be one of those reasons why so many of us hear Jesus' words and we turn away. We cannot relinquish that fundamental way that we humans have learned to manage our life. But we have to. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to truly live, we have to follow the Jesus way, which is dying. Because most everything that we think we know is wrong. We think that our aim is to win. But in the kingdom of God, our aim is to die. So these are the parables that we've heard over the last few weeks. We've heard the parable of the shrewd manager, where Jesus ended with those very blunt words, you cannot serve God and money. But money is what many of us do serve. And money, we all know, now that's a primary way that we show that we've won. Then there's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There's a real danger of being rich, of spending our whole life aimed at winning and thinking that we have, in fact, in the end, won, and then realizing it is all absolutely worthless. And then just before this morning's reading, and the lectionary skipped over this portion of Luke chapter 17, Jesus said what may be some of his most difficult words in Luke. Jesus said this, If your brother or sister sin against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So we have Jesus looking at his disciples and almost in the most explicit way telling them forgiveness is not about keeping score. It's not about winning. So after Jesus has upset the apple cart by telling all these confounding stories, the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. And I think we can hear these words from the disciples in two different ways. And my hunch is it's probably both. The first one seems really wise. It's humble. It's Jesus, all of this seems impossible. And I'm going to need you to help me if this is ever going to happen. Increase our faith. Hopefully it's not just cynicism, but I actually hear the disciples a little bit differently because I've read up till now. I think we're also hearing just another and more spiritually acceptable way of the disciples trying to figure out how they're going to win. Jesus, so if you're telling me it takes faith to do all this stuff, then yeah, get, get me that. If faith is the resource I need to win, then give me some faith and lots of it. For the disciples, it seems, and if I'm really honest, for me too, faith is often a resource rather than a posture of the heart. Faith at the end is actually a way of dying. Faith is a way that says, I have nothing to bring and I am completely at the mercy of God. And God, if you don't help me, I'm finished. And I'm gonna trust that the God 
of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be my God too. Perhaps the disciples here are very similar to the rich man we read about last week who was still operating like a rich man trying to win. Maybe the disciples are using some spiritual language, saying what they think Jesus wants to hear, but at the end of the day, they're still trying to win because they haven't met the cross yet. And Jesus says to them, if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to that mulberry tree, be uprooted, and you could plant it in the middle of the sea. Now, if we've grown up in Sunday school, we've been told and we've heard properly that the mustard seed is really tiny. I mean, it's tiny. It's insignificant. Oftentimes, when we hear these words from Jesus, we assume that what Jesus is saying is, you don't even have faith the size of a mustard seed. If you had just that much, if you could just increase your faith to that amount, then you could do these crazy big things. You could really win. Does that sound like what Jesus would say? Maybe we hear it that way because we cannot get out of the frame that the point is winning. I think Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. I think Jesus is saying, if you have only the tiniest amount of faith, in fact, an almost insignificant amount, really not even enough to count, if you have less faith than you already have, I think he's saying, you can do what appears impossible. And what appears impossible to the disciples? See, we import all kinds of stuff into this story. This means I could walk into a hospital ward and everyone would immediately be healed. Or this means that I could say, that Camaro is mine and it's mine. Well, Jesus doesn't know much about Camaros. What Jesus is saying is what's impossible is trusting God and dying and trusting that God's story will raise us from death in the end. Faith isn't something we measure. That's the way people who are committed to winning think about faith. Faith is not a resource to help us succeed at whatever it is that we've stood up as the measuring stick of our life. Faith is the posture of our soul toward Jesus who is our brother and has to, who has told us to follow him into the valley of shadow of death and into the new creation. Faith is actually how we give up on winning. It's how we surrender to Jesus' promise of a radically different orientation to life, a radically different way of even understanding what it is that life means. What does it mean to be human? Faith is how we trust that if we die, Jesus will bring us back from the dead. Faith is not a way of avoiding death. It's a way of walking into it. 
The most outrageous part of Jesus' image of the mulberry tree isn't, to me, speaking to it and seeing it uproot itself. That's a feat, because this was probably, I'm told, the black mulberry, which, again, I am talking way above my pay grade here, but as I understand it, this is the kind of mulberry that can grow up to 600 years and has an immense, deep, and wide root system. So to say that it's going to be uprooted is like ripping a crater out of the ground. But what's even wilder in Jesus' imagery is he's saying you can uproot it out of the ground and then you could plant this mulberry in the middle of the sea. Again, I'm not the gardener in our family. I don't think mulberries or much anything grows in the middle of the sea unless it's you know, algae or things that are supposed to be in the middle of the sea. What Jesus is saying is, is that this mulberry tree that should die in the sea can be planted there when God is at work. I think the disciples were still focusing on themselves. Give me lots of faith, God, if that's what it takes, Jesus, if that's what it takes for me to be able to do the things that I think I'm supposed to accomplish in this life. And I think Jesus is saying, you are wildly missing the point. Your point actually isn't to accomplish things in life. Your point is to die. And when you die, another kind of life emerges in places that you could not imagine life emerging. And in that place, the kingdom of God is being born in places where before there was only death. So this is Jesus' ludicrous invitation. Trust that we can die. Trust that we don't have to win. Trust that we can actually let our ego go. We can release the fear that we will come to nothing. We can stop comparing our gifts and our bodies and our family and our history and our spirituality. We can stop trying to win. Because the fact is, in the kingdom of God, we all have enough faith. Because all the faith that's needed is to die. You have the faith you need to die. And if we follow Jesus, here is the brutal reality. We will die. Because following Jesus always goes to a cross. There is no avoiding the cross. Many of us spend vast amounts of energy and anxiety and despair attempting to avoid the cross. But following Jesus, we will die. But the good news is that Jesus promises that he will bring our lives back from the dead. The resurrection is not merely Jesus doing a fantastic feat that makes us marvel about who he is. 
the resurrection is the promise that when each of us follow him into the cross, God raises us from the dead. God will plant a mulberry bush in the middle of the ocean. God will raise us from our necessary death. And when we have faith that that is true, then we can die. Will you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.